You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I talk with Alfred Archer. Alfred is an assistant professor of philosophy at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. His main research interests are in moral psychology, social and political philosophy, and philosophy of sport. He's the co-editor of The Moral Psychology of Admiration and the co-author of the book, Honoring and Admiring the Moral and Ethical Guide with Benjamin Matheson. In this episode, we talk about effective injustice enforcing emotional norms onto others, admirable figures, soccer, and so much more. Hello, Alfred, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm, I'm looking so forward to this conversation. We have yet to ever speak in person. We have communicated via email. So I am, I'm kind of giddy about this conversation, particularly we also have a lot of research interests in common. So yes, I'm very, I'm very excited. So tell me, Alfred, before we get into the details of the, of the philosophy, how did you get interested in philosophy? I got interested as a teenager. I was uh, interested in socialist politics and active in a, a socialist uh, party in Scotland, a political party. And that got me interested in political philosophy. Um, so within that political party, I was introduced to uh, Marxist ideas and feminist ideas. And then my parents would also uh, buy me uh, kind of more general interest, uh, introductory philosophy books uh, that I find really oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. And then I was also able to take a philosophy class in high school, which uh, was my favorite class in the, in the whole of, of school, I think. I had a really great teacher, uh, Colin Price was his name, and he really helped me fall in love with the subject. Was it an introductory course or, or yeah, it was, did you all focus on one figure or one topic? It was it was a mix of different things. So there was some, some basic kind of really basic logic uh, involved in it. But also uh, we read parts of Plato's Republic, which was, was great. Okay. Um, and then there was some moral philosophy as well. Now, now were your parents philosophers? So for them to give you philosophy books makes me think that they were philosophers themselves, or at least novice philosophers. What were their relationship to philosophy? Uh, no, they, they're not philosophers. Um, so my my dad is a, a film producer and television uh, documentary producer, and um, my my mother's was a journalism lecturer, and um, and then also my more extended parents. So my stepdad was a or is a um, a professor of um, of music and the sociology of music, and my stepmom's a, a documentary maker as well. So no philosophers there, but some uh, interesting uh, interesting philosophical ideas, I guess. You made a point to mention um, that you didn't read a lot of political philosophy stuff, but but I'm interested. I'm always interested in how people came to their particular research interests because in philosophy, a lot of people don't know this. But but what you can what you can research is is very vast. But you've decided to focus on emotions in general, and there's a lot of things in particular under that umbrella. But you you you're pretty much attracted to to, to emotions. So what is it that got you interested in this area of philosophy? Yeah, good question. I um. I did my PhD in uh, moral philosophy on the topic of, of supererogation, so acts that are beyond the call of duty, and um, thinking about the kind of 
way that we respond to to people who who really go above and beyond with with admiration got me really interested in in the emotion of of admiration and that's really where my research went uh, after i'd finished the the phd uh, so yeah it's something that happened after my phd i think that i got interested in the, the philosophy of emotions um i went to my first philosophy of motions conference in the year i finished my phd and, and was fascinated by the talks there and that really helped a lot as well Many people may be familiar with racial injustice. They may be familiar with gender injustice. So I think it will be important for us to start here before we move forward into kind of the topic of our discussion. So what is affective injustice and what are some examples? Yeah. So um, the concept of affective injustice is one that um, is, of course, very related to uh, to gender injustice and, and racial injustice. And it's a concept that has been developed by, by two different philosophers uh, independently of each other, uh, as far as I know. So first, um, in Amir Srinivasan's uh, really wonderful paper, The Aptness of Anger, she discusses a debate in the 1960s between two uh, public intellectuals. So first, James Baldwin, a key uh, important figure in the, the civil rights movement, and William Buckley, who's an important conservative intellectual of the time. And Baldwin's explaining why uh, black Americans are so angry about the racism they were facing in the United States. And Buckley, the, the conservative, um, responds by agreeing that this anger is reasonable, as a reasonable response to the situation, but says that this is unhelpful. People respond in this way, if black Americans respond in this way, it's going to make uh, white Americans unsympathetic to their cause, and they may even uh, respond with violence. So Buckley says that if black Americans really wanted to advance, advance their cause, they have to let go of their anger before uh, talking about racism in public. And this, it is this call for victims of oppression to let go of their anger that Srinivasan is really interested in. So according to Srinivasan, there will be situations where anger is an appropriate or, or fitting response to um, the oppression one is facing, but it will also be unhelpful to the cause of trying to end that oppression. Um, and here, Srinivasan says that there's a, a conflict, a psychological conflict between this appropriate emotional re response and the emotional response that would be most helpful for ending uh, that injustice. So that's one form of affective injustice. That's how, how Srinivasan sees affective injustice as this psychological conflict that's a kind of secondary oppression on top of the original um, oppression. Shiloh Whitney also uses the term affective injustice in a slightly different way. Her focus is on whose feelings receive uptake and whose feelings do not. So she begins by discussing a point made by Marilyn Fry about the way in which people may respond to uh, a woman's anger by telling women to stop being upset, to calm down, or even worse, to stop being hysterical. Um, and according to to Whitney, these responses treat the anger as something that only tells us something about the woman's feelings and not about what those feelings are a response to. So it's focusing the attention on what the on the woman and something wrong with her mental states, mental instability, um, is, is the way it's presenting the, the emotions of the woman, women rather than having any meaningful content. So it's refusing to grant this anger any kind of weight and allow it to move us in our um, deliberations or evaluations of the situation. 
And so for Whitney, that's that's the core of, of what she sees uh, affective injustices. It's when one's feelings are not given uptake in this way and people aren't aren't moved by them. Are you are you convinced by both of these accounts? I think there's, there's definitely something to both these accounts. Yeah. And we shouldn't really see them as uh being competing accounts of affective injustice, in my opinion. Um, rather, I think affective injustice is a more general phenomenon or a more general concept, which is basically it's focused on the ways in which people may be wronged in relation to their feelings and emotions or the victim of injustice or oppression that concerns their their feelings and their emotions. And I think what Srinivasan and Whitney have done is articulate different ways in which people might be subject to these kinds of injustices. You suggest that an additional example of what we've been calling affective injustice is something that, that, that you refer to as emotional imperialism, another big word for us who's listening. What is emotional imperialism? And how is it an example of what you describe as affective injustice? So uh, emotional imperialism is a concept that I developed uh, together with my, my co-author, um, Benjamin Matheson. And we see it as when a, a powerful group imposes aspects of its Uh, culture or its group's emotional norms and standards on another less powerful group and at the same time marks out that group's, that less powerful group's um, standards and norms as deviant in some way or inferior. So that's quite abstract um, but I'll I'll, I'll give you an example in a minute. So the the inspiration behind this is um, Iris Marion Young's concept of cultural imperialism which is where a dominant group imposes their particular cultural perspective on a less powerful group. And again, marks that perspective out as deviant in some way. So an example of of cultural imperialism, um, we can think of a a homophobic society where the experience of of heterosexuals is taken to be representative of human experience in general, and the experiences of of homosexuals are marked out as deviant and inferior. And so this creates some pressure to adopt this uh, heterosexual perspective. Or... A colonizing country like Britain, invading another country and imposing its cultural standards um, on that country would be another example of this kind of thing. So we see emotional imperialism as one form of, of cultural imperialism, because a core part of any culture is, is a set of norms and understandings and values that relate to the emotions and feelings. So what we see emotional imperialism as is when the norms and standards of, of a culture imposed on, um, sorry, of one powerful group imposes its norms and standards on another less powerful group, marking their standards out as as deviant or inferior. So for example, a dominant group may take its country's history to be a fitting source of pride or admiration and impose this reaction on another less powerful group. So we can think of things like, you know, ridiculing people who fail to express admiration for for one's country or who refuse to honour the flag, sing the national anthem or, or accept the kind of glorifying stories about a country's past as all being forms of emotional imperialism. So it's, it's not just, oh, we want you to feel the emotion that we want you to feel, but we want you to feel the emotion in response to this thing that we want you to feel. And any deviation from that is penalized or, or punished. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's not just um, that we want you to feel this emotion. As you say, if you don't feel this emotion, we're going to, to punish you and mark you out as, as deviant in some way. Yeah, absolutely. So you wrote the, 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 you co-wrote the paper on this topic out of a sports context. So let's talk about that context. How have you seen emotional imperialism play out first in the case, and I think Americans would be more familiar with this, in the case of former NFL player Colin Kaepernick and also soccer player, you all also called that football player, James McLean. 
So in the, the case of, of Colin Kaepernick, um, as I'm sure many of your, your listeners are, are familiar with the case, so he wanted to protest uh, police brutality and racial injustice in the United States by sitting during the, the pre-match playing of the national anthem. And he, he, he wanted to do this because he didn't want to show pride in a flag and, and a country that oppresses uh, black people and people of colour. And then he modified his, his protest a little bit after meeting with um, Nate Boyer, who was a, a retired uh, player and former member of the, the US um, military. So he changed his protest to, to taking a knee because this is how pe- members of the military um, show respect for a fallen comrade. So he wanted to find a way of, kind of showing respect for his country, but also protesting racial injustice. When he did this, of course, he was accused by many people of being anti-American, being anti-military. He was subject to, to threats, including death threats, abuse, other forms of pressure to try and get him to stop protesting. Donald Trump even said that, that Kaepernick and, and other protesting athletes should leave the country. And he was forced to leave his team, couldn't get hired elsewhere for a while. And lots of pressure was brought upon him to, to, to stop this form of protest. We still saw this as a, a clear case of, of what um, we have in mind with the term emotional imperialism, because we have a country of a long history of, of racism and white supremacy. And in this country, a mostly white group of critics are joining together to try and coerce Kaepernick to conform to their preferred emotional reaction to the, the US flag and the, the US anthem. And this included you know, significant parts of the media, the man who would go on to become president, and also Kaepernick's employer and, and potential employers. So they're really attempting to get him to conform to their emotional norms and standards through force and identifying him as somehow deviant and an outsider for, for failing to live up to these norms. And in the case of, of James McLean, as you said, it's probably less familiar to, to listeners of, of your podcast. Uh, McLean is a, an Irish uh, soccer player who refuses to wear a poppy to commemorate the British Armed Forces. Now, 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 remind me, yes, what is what is a poppy? Yes, in the UK, people wear uh, poppies every year in November uh, to set, to commemorate the British Army. And this is you know widespread in the media, certainly, but also, you know, more generally in public, people wear these poppies. And it's become the norm for uh, soccer players in England to have them printed on their tops. It's, it's become the norm as well that if you are seen on television as a public figure without a poppy, um, close to November, then this is a, a big problem, uh, which I guess is a more general uh, part of what we're talking about. So McLean is from the, the city of Derry in Northern Ireland, and he's from the, a Catholic community in Derry. And the Catholics in Northern Ireland were subject to uh, fairly brutal oppression at the, the hands of the, the British army, in particular the, the Bloody Sunday Massacre of 1972, where the British army killed 13 ar- unarmed civilians and wounded a further 15 uh, who were protesting in a peaceful way um, on the streets of Derry. So McLean's decision not to wear a poppy is a response to this, the way that the British Army behaved in Northern Ireland, and in particular in his hometown. And so he feels it would be disrespectful of him to wear a poppy which is celebrating and honouring uh, the British Army, given how the British Army behaved in relation to Irish Catholics in the community he um, grew up in. So McLean is the target of lots of anti-Irish and anti-Catholic abuse at football matches and of course particularly on the internet. Receives death threats every year. He's received these both to him and targeting his family and so it got to the, the point where he had, he decided he couldn't be on Twitter anymore because of the, the kind of constant stream of abuse he was getting. 
So again, this this strikes us as a clear case of, of what we're talking about when with this idea of emotional imperialism, because we have a, a powerful group of English football fans and I guess other football fans as well, trying to enforce their emotional norms, that the British army is admirable, um, and marking him out as being somehow deviant or wrong and, and mistaken, inferior in some way, for failing to, to live up to these norms, failing to honour and admire the, the British army. One might ask this question, and, and I, I wonder what your response is. Do you think emotional enforcement, as you're describing, is ever permissible? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think there may be times where we could say that it's uh, it's okay to pressure people to conform to some emotional responses. Uh, Jeffrey Bluestein has argued that when we're doing some commemorative practices, some kind of disciplined emotionality, as he puts it, uh, can be important. So basically, it can be important to try and ensure uh, that people respond with the right emotions at these uh, commemorative rituals. Think of a, a Holocaust memorial event, for for example, which might involve people feeling sorrow or expressing their grief for those who, who lost their lives um, in the Holocaust. We might think that for this to work effectively, it would be important that there aren't people responding with strongly different emotions. It would perhaps be disrespectful for people to be very publicly joyful at such an event or happy and celebratory. So I think there will be times where some kind of disciplining of emotions may be permissible, but I think that they're likely to be fairly exceptional cases. And in this case as well, I think it's one thing to try and make sure that no one at an event is responding in a way that, that kind of conflicts with the, the emotions that the event is supposed to be eliciting. But that's very different from forcing people who are going to work, like Kaepernick or, or James McLean were, uh, to engage in this kind of commemorative ritual. I'm interested in the concept because one of the things that I, I think is important is one of the amazing things about naming a problem, it allows you to see the problem a little bit more. Um, so we we're naming a phenomenon termed emotional imperialism, and we've seen how it plays out in sports. But help us see how it plays out outside of sports. So how do you, how, how might we see, I mean, you use the examples commemorative example. Um, but I wonder if you, just as you, 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 you're looking at the news, looking at, at, at history, how do you see, how have you seen emotional imperialism play out um, outside of sports? Thinking about statues to historical figures, which often, at least, perhaps all the time, kind of set the, the figure up to be someone who's admirable. And perhaps we could see that, that placing such statues in um, central locations in a, in a city could be a way of trying to uh, enforce the idea that this is an admirable person, even if there's a lot of disagreement in a um, in the country about this. And uh, Franz Fanon talks about this uh, kind of thing in, in The Wretched of the Earth, where colonialists would, would invade a country and then uh, put up statues to uh, colonialists in the country, kind of enforcing uh, the local population to accept these um, figures as somehow admirable. So that that's one kind of historical example, but I think it's also something you can see a lot online and on social media. What often happens online is that a person reacts to an event in a way that others deem objectionable in some way, and rather than try and reason with that person or engage in some kind of legitimate emotional appeal, people try to get them fired or to collectively shame them or to find some other ways to kind of enforce 
an emotional uh, standard on that person. And then this will be accompanied by abuse for those, even those who fail to join in uh, in condemning someone who's being shamed in that way, or for continuing to follow, for example, on Twitter, those who, who are subject to this kind of shaming. So I'm always, I'm always interested in how we can do better. That's the moral philosopher inside of me. What recommendation might you provide to help us avoid emotional imperialism? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I, know, I knew you'd get to the difficult questions. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, so I don't pretend to have any special remedy here, and I don't think um, my co-author Benjamin Mapson would either. <laughs> but I think in, in general, it may be better to try to get people to, to see your point of view and why you feel the way you do, rather than to simply try and enforce your emotional standards onto other people. And it, this can be pretty difficult if you see someone publicly celebrating someone who you think is is a moral monster um, or you know someone who you really don't like and, and everyone's celebrating this person but rather than trying to force people to feel the same way i think it's usually better to try to explain to people why we feel the way we do so that they can at least try and see why we have the emotional norms uh, that we have even if they don't go on to accept them but of course the problem is that people who do this in public are often then subject to more of this emotional imperialism so both Kaepernick and McLean very carefully explained uh, why they feel the way they did and why they tried to find they tried to find a way of respectfully registering a, a protest. Kaepernick even changed his form of protest into one that he was told would be more respectful to military veterans. McLean has made it very clear in, in his statements that he's not trying to convey any disrespect for people who've lost their lives fighting for the British Army. And in both cases, they were, they were met with abuse and death threats. So it's, it's yeah, it's really difficult. Um, it's 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 nice to say that you could try and persuade people to to see things from your point of view, but of course, it takes great courage for people to to act in this way. And I guess I guess also for those who are actually sincere in their in their criticism and, and probably wouldn't know that they are actually engaging in imperialism. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking that they can kind of incorporate the epistemic virtues here, right? So kind of accepting this information with a sense of humility, et cetera, and as opposed to, uh, as opposed to, to defense. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it's hard to, to make these kind of recommendations, um, particularly a, a recommendation that you think can always respond <laughs> to kind of counter responses. And it, it, it's, it, it's, it's difficult. I, I, one of the things that I, I think that is, is important, that we're not doomed, <laughs> that for lots of people, they may not even know that that's, this is what they're doing, that even the attempt to correct people is probably the only thing that we, that we can do. But I think that's valuable. I, I still think that's, that's a valuable response, even if it doesn't do the work that we think that it can do. Yeah, absolutely. I think humility is, is important here and accepting that there are different emotional standards that people have and different groups of different emotional norms and i also don't think we have to think of this as always being the case that one set of emotional norms is right and one is wrong right right there can just be differences that don't necessarily show that someone is is incorrect and so i would like to think that a bit of humility here could could be helpful um but of course it's hard to uh, to do that if a response to to being humble will be that people give you death threats and uh, online abuse in response. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about lately and, and kind of pointed to this is, is that the, there's a lot of bad things or harms that we can, that we can prevent if we accept that there is emotional diversity, <laughs> not just in the world, but for a particular context. And I think we've been conditioned to think that only one emotion fits one particular context or that one particular emotion fits, 
fits the kind of context that we find valuable. And I think if we need, we need to accept, and this goes back to like emotional, not just emotional intelligence, but an emotional education to suggest that there are, we should make room for, for diversity in relationship to our emotions. And I think that is one way perhaps that we can find ourselves not entering to or, or not perpetuating what you're referring to as emotional imperialism. Yes, absolutely. I, I fully agree with this. So I think, yeah, there, there could, first of all, there can be these um, different kind of cultural or, or group-based emotional norms and standards. So there's diversity in that sense. But I also think even within a particular cultural group, people might just have different emotional responses to a situation and it doesn't necessarily mean that either one of them is the wrong response you know there can be more than one fitting or legitimate way um, to emotionally respond to a situation i think that might be controversial amongst some philosophers of emotion but that's certainly uh, something that, that i think and, and i know my my co-author benjamin masson agrees with us with that as well so yeah we're, we're both fully on board with your idea of emotional diversity i think So look at your CV will reveal that you are attracted to sports, at least from a theoretical perspective. But I'm not sure that you are a sports fan. Are you a sports fan? And and what sports specifically are you a fan of? I am a huge uh, soccer fan. Uh, So my interest in using sport examples in philosophy, but also uh, working on the philosophy of sport, it really comes from being a a sports fan. So growing up and, and throughout my time as a student, I was a season ticket holder at a, a small Glasgow team called Partick Thistle, uh, who probably aren't well known outside of Scotland, and they kind of very much exist in the, the shadow of, of Glasgow's two two bigger clubs, Rangers and Celtic. And then I moved to, to Tilburg in the Netherlands and, and have become a fan of the, the local team, uh, Villentwee, which is a slightly odd thing, becoming a, a fan of a team as, as an adult. It's took a kind of effort at first to really try and like the team, and it didn't really work. And then a couple of years later, I tried again, and the team were more exciting, the fans were more excited, and, and that's where I kind of, that allowed me to, to fall in love with Film Toy. I'm tempted to mention a show, and I don't know if it's coming on in the Netherlands, but it's called Ted Lasso. Have you seen the no, show? No, I haven't. Yet? Have you heard of the show? I haven't. No, I've not heard of it at all, actually, no. So he's basically, <laughs> he's basically an American football, American football coach who got recruited to coach what you guys call football or a soccer team yeah. in the in the in the UK. It is one of the most hilarious but heartwarming shows that I've seen in a very, very long time. It's on Apple Plus. I'm not sponsored by <laughs> Apple Plus, but I felt like Ted Lasso earlier when I was asking you to explain a poppy because he has no knowledge of like European or, or British anything. Um, so he's quite ignorant in that regard, but he's also trying to navigate the world of soccer and try to understand the rules. And, and I know I feel like him in relationship, not just to not knowing anything about the UK, uh, but also I know nothing, absolutely nothing about soccer. But, you know, I'm glad someone loves it. And I find the show, which is based on soccer, hilarious. <laughs> I'm definitely going to going to watch that then. I'm sure I'll find a, a way to, to access that in the Netherlands. You mentioned that the paper that we discussed, um, that you had a co-author. And I, I, I you know, recognize that particularly in our discipline, we don't really value collaboration that much. And, and I wonder, how important is collaboration to you in thinking through your ideas as well as as well as research? I think for me, it's, it's crucial. Um, so... I don't know how I would have survived my PhD without the support of some really excellent uh, friends who were fellow uh, PhD students. So a special shout out to Lanny Watson and Alan Wilson. So they were just really lovely people interested in discussing philosophy and 
helping each other improve the ideas we were working on and really generous with their, their time and, and trying to help find ways in which we could all improve each other's ideas. And then I also learned a lot. Well, I learned a lot in general from my supervisors, but I learned a lot from co-authoring with one of my supervisors. We co-authored a paper. And that seemed to me just a, an excellent way to, to really educate someone in how to, to write a paper, is just to write it uh, together. And then after my PhD, I realized how it can be much more fun and interesting uh, to work out an idea with someone else and, and write it together um, than to, to do it alone. The feeling of being completely stuck in some problem can be uh, very dispiriting when you're you're doing it by yourself. But when you're co-offering, you always have someone who's just as invested in the idea as you are and who knows what you're trying to say and is willing to kind of work out the, the problem with you. Yeah, I've had lots of wonderful co-offers, but again, I should give special mention to Benjamin Matheson because we co-authored these pieces on emotional imperialism together and uh, several other papers and, and a book as well. I do think it's kind of strange that people in some people in philosophy at least are still suspicious of, of co-offering and I hope that this um, is changing. I'm, I feel very lucky that at Tilburg where I work it's, um, it's a very friendly and collaborative department for one thing but also it really values and encourages people to, to co-offer. I love that. So many other disciplines have realized the value of collaboration. Even those disciplines that are very sciencey um, and math- mathematical, which is who we think as philosophers, we think that we're more adjacent to them than the social sciences. And if they have understood the, 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 the value of collaboration and it doesn't take away from the ingenuity or the creativity or the aptitude of each individual author, then I don't know why it's taken us so long to get it. But I, I'm, 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 I'm happy to see folk like you not only doing it because you see the value in it but the more people that do it I think the more that it will become acceptable and I think that that would be that would be wonderful you, you mentioned earlier that your dissertation was on admiration and you're currently co-editing or you have co-edited a volume called the moral psychology of admiration who do you admire and why yeah um it's a question that sometimes yeah I sometimes find uh, difficult to answer uh, so I admire people like uh Kaepernick and McLean, who are willing to take these these public stands for what they believe in, uh, knowing the abuse that they'll face. So I'll give you another example of something like that. I'm a big admirer of a, a Scottish politician uh, called Mary Black. She's from Glasgow and she's willing to stand up for working class people. She's frequently uh, makes speeches in, in Parliament, really campaigning for the, the rights of, of working class people. And she speaks openly about her desire for an independent socialist Scotland, which is something that I want as well. So that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's the target of a lot of sexist and homophobic abuse online. And she's just perfectly happy. You know, she keeps going throughout all this and really stands up for, for what she believes in. So I'm a, yeah, a big admirer of her. And it also doesn't hurt that she's a, a big fan of Partick Thistle, the, the soccer team I support. So there's that uh, sense of we support the same team, which helps as well. Do you do you think, and, 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 and I'm looking forward to reading more of your work on, on, on admiration, do you think that the people that we admire, it reveals something about ourselves? Do you think the people that you've listed, the examples that you've listed, does that say something about you? Yeah, I definitely think it uh, reveals something about ourselves. I think there's, there's this line from, from Thomas Carlyle, uh, show me the man you honor and I'll show you the kind of man you are something like that mm. and yeah I think you know it, it te- who people admire says a lot about what they value I think the fact that I, I'm picking on these examples of, of Kaepernick and McLean shows that I guess as, as you've made clear already that I I value sport uh, but also that uh, I value them for the, the particular 
political stances they're taking. But I think it can also say something about what you're willing to overlook as well. So in another article I wrote with, with Benjamin Matheson, we talked about giving the practice of, of giving awards to great artists who may have been less than admirable in other areas of their lives. So, for example, uh, giving a Lifetime Achievement Award to Roman Polanski, whose, whose films are um, excellent and, and wonderful, but who is a, a self-confessed um, rapist. So I think it, it can say a lot about what what kinds of things you're willing to, to overlook as well as, as what it is that you, you value in a person. Alfred, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I learned a lot. Thank you, Marisha. I really enjoyed this. This is great. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.